Imagine you're making a morning pour-over coffee before you head off to work. You set up a filter and fill it with fresh coffee grounds. You then take some hot water and pour it over the coffee grounds and watch as the water passes through the filter, creating a perfect cup of coffee to start your day. When thinking about nephrotic syndrome, we can think of the glomerulus like a coffee filter. Large proteins such as albumin are represented by the coffee grounds, and the glomerular filtration barrier is a coffee filter. When a coffee filter works well, no grounds end up in your coffee. Just as when the glomerulus is intact, minimal protein ends up in the filtrate. However, if holes developed in the coffee filter, you would have a cup of coffee filled with grounds. This is what happens in nephrotic syndrome. The glomerular filtration barrier breaks down, leading to large amounts of protein entering the filtrate often clinically presenting as the nephrotic syndrome. Today, our patient has nephrotic syndrome, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, The Leaky Filter. Each kidney contains approximately 1 million glomeruli that filter a massive amount of blood each day. In a young, healthy adult with a normal GFR, up to 180 liters of blood is filtered each day. Filtration occurs in the glomeruli, which is where the pathology of nephrotic syndrome lies. Glomeruli have a complex structure with a filtration network that acts like a sieve to allow small molecules and ions to pass through, but excludes larger plasma proteins such as albumin. The three layers to this barrier include the glomerular capillary endothelium, the basement membrane, and a single layer of epithelial cells known as podocytes. Pathology within these three layers may lead to breakdown of its normal filtration function, leading to losses of large amounts of serum proteins, sometimes upwards of 10 grams per day, which clinically presents as nephrotic syndrome. There are two theories as to why patients with nephrotic syndrome develop edema. The underfill hypothesis suggests that the decrease in serum albumin leads to low plasma oncotic pressure, activation of the renin-aldosterone system, and sodium and water retention. The alternative, the overfill hypothesis, suggests that proteins lost in the urine, such as plasmin, directly lead to activation of the ENAC sodium channel in the collecting duct, which causes sodium retention and edema. The low plasma oncotic pressure also directly stimulates hepatic lipoprotein synthesis, leading to hyperlipidemia in patients with nephrotic syndrome. Patients with nephrotic syndrome are also at increased risk of thromboembolism, with up to 8% of patients developing a venous thromboembolism. The primary risk factors for VTE are the degree of hypoalbuminemia and the etiology of nephrotic syndrome, with membranous nephropathy carrying the greatest risk. Urinary losses of anticoagulant proteins such as antithrombin-3, protein C, and protein S, increased liver synthesis of procoagulant factors, as well as increased platelet activation are some of the primary contributing factors that increase risk of arterial and venous thromboembolism in this patient population. Lastly, urine protein losses also include immunoglobulins, which can lead to hypogammaglobinemia, increasing patient susceptibility to infections particularly with encapsulated organisms.
The first step in managing a patient with nephrotic syndrome is recognizing the constellation of clinical and biochemical features in order to make the diagnosis and identify the underlying cause to allow targeted treatment. Nephrotic syndrome is defined by proteinuria greater than 3 to 3.5 grams per day, hypoalbuminemia less than 25 grams per liter, peripheral edema, and hyperlipidemia. Patients with nephrotic syndrome will most commonly come to medical attention due to the development of edema, which can often be severe at times. Edema may only be present peripherally in the lower extremities, but can also involve the abdominal wall, upper extremities, genitals, and periorbital regions. Depending on the etiology of the nephrotic syndrome, edema can progress slowly over months or can accumulate rapidly over a matter of days. A key feature that may help identify edematous patients with nephrotic syndrome versus other causes of volume overload is the presence of frothy urine, which occurs in the context of high-grade proteinuria. On history, it is important to review the patient's past medical history for cardiac or chronic liver disease or risk factors for their development, as patients with heart failure or cirrhosis can also present in a generally edematous state. Patients should also be asked about dyspnea as they may develop pleural effusions. Further, as these patients are hypercoagulable, dyspnea may also be secondary to the development of a PE. Therefore, other symptoms of PE or DVT, such as pleuritic chest pain, hemoptysis, or calf pain, should be clarified on history. In order to focus your history further, it is important to have a framework for the classification of nephrotic syndrome. The etiologies for nephrotic syndrome can be broken down into primary glomerular diseases or secondary to another disease process. Primary causes include minimal change disease, membranous nephropathy, and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, which is referred to as FSGS. In childhood, the most common cause of nephrotic syndrome is minimal change disease. In adults, the leading cause of nephrotic syndrome are membranous nephropathy and FSGS. Of note, each of these primary diseases can also be caused by secondary systemic disease processes or medications. These secondary causes include diabetes mellitus, infections, malignancies, autoimmune diseases, as well as various medications. Amyloidosis is an uncommon but important cause of nephrotic syndrome, particularly in older adults, that can be secondary to a monoclonal light crane dyscrasia and AL amyloidosis, or be associated with chronic inflammatory diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis and AA amyloidosis. In pregnant women, preeclampsia can also present as nephrotic syndrome. Other glomerular diseases that can present with either nephritic or nephrotic syndrome include IgA nephropathy, post-infectious glomerular nephritis, and membroproliferative glomerular nephritis. Now that we have a schema to classify nephrotic syndrome, we can ask more targeted questions on history that may provide clues to identify secondary causes in the patient we are assessing. Membranous nephropathy is secondary in up to 25% of cases, with secondary etiologies including underlying cancers. Similarly, minimal change disease can be caused by hematologic malignancies, most notably Hodgkin's lymphoma. Therefore, patients should be asked if they are up-to-date with age-appropriate cancer screening, or if they have any constitutional symptoms or other focal features that may suggest the presence of malignancy. While lupus is typically thought of as causing nephritic syndrome, it can also present as nephrotic syndrome, secondary to a membranous pattern of injury, termed class 5 lupus nephritis, in up to 20% of lupus nephritis. 
In some cases, kidney involvement may be a presenting feature of lupus. However, more commonly, patients will have other features of lupus on history, such as joint pain, photosensitive rashes, or serositis. It is important to screen for systemic symptoms or risk factors of acute or chronic viral infections, as parvovirus and HIV can be associated with FSGS, while hepatitis B and C may cause secondary membranous nephropathy. Case reports are also beginning to emerge of various glomerular diseases, including nephrotic syndrome, in the context of COVID-19 infection. Patients should also be asked about any underlying structural abnormalities of the urinary tract, such as prematurity, low birth weight, or congenital abnormalities of the kidney and urinary tract. Low nephron endowment in these cases leads to hyperfiltration of remaining nephrons, which can ultimately lead to secondary FSGS. As always, a thorough history should be taken since various medications have been known to cause nephrotic syndrome. For example, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are associated with many glomerular diseases, while numerous medications have been known to cause secondary FSGS, such as bisphosphonates, interferon, and lithium. Now that we have taken a complete history, let's move on to the physical exam. The physical examination should always begin with an assessment of a patient's stability. Are their ABCs stable? What are their vitals? Once you've determined a patient is stable, you can proceed with your assessment. Due to their sodium avidity, these patients may present with hypertension. Documenting their weight is also important to compare to their baseline and for future encounters when monitoring their response to diuresis. Pleural effusions and pulmonary emboli can occur, so a complete respiratory exam is warranted. As previously noted, these patients are often grossly edematous, so a volume status exam is essential. Pitting edema can be extensive, even involving the upper extremities and abdominal wall. As we discussed previously, these patients are at risk for infection, so a focused examination based on your history for any focal signs of infection is also important. Your physical should also include examination for deep vein thrombosis or flank pain from renal vein thrombosis, given the risk of increased VTE. It is also necessary during your examination to make note of any features that may suggest a chronic system disease or infection as a cause of patient's nephrotic syndrome, such as joint swelling or rashes with autoimmune diseases, masses or lymphadenopathy with malignancy, or features of chronic liver disease that may suggest an underlying chronic viral hepatitis. Other key exam features in some patients with nephrotic syndrome include an exam of their nails for leukonychia, a sign of hypoalbuminemia, and eruptive xanthoma which occurs with severe hyperlipidemia. In patients with suspected nephrotic syndrome, the workup begins with urine testing to confirm the diagnosis. A urine dipstick is a quick screen for any proteinuria or hematuria, which may be signs of underlying glomerular disease. Although a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio is often used as a screening test, it often over or underestimates 24-hour urine protein excretion and is not reliable to confirm nephrotic range proteinuria. Therefore, 24-hour urine collection should be completed to accurately quantify protein excretion. Greater than 3 to 3.5 grams per day of protein is consistent with nephrotic range proteinuria. This is approximately 300 to 350 milligrams per millimole on a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio. Other confirmatory tests include a serum albumin for hypoalbuminemia and lipid panel for hyperlipidemia. Renal biopsy is required in the majority of patients to definitively determine the etiology for their nephrotic syndrome and guide treatment, 
and the decision to proceed with the biopsy should be made in consultation with a nephrologist. Electrolytes and creatinine should be measured to assess their current renal function and also to monitor these patients while they are started on diuretics and RAS inhibitors. Renal function is important to monitor as AKI can complicate nephrotic syndrome, such as ATN with minimal change disease or intravascular volume depletion from overly aggressive diuresis. Furthermore, progression to end-stage renal disease can occur in some cases, most commonly due to FSGS. Investigations to determine the etiology of the patient's nephrotic syndrome should always be guided by the history and physical examination. However, tests that may be ordered include HbA1c for diabetic nephropathy, ANA, anti-DSDNA, C3 and C4 values for lupus, anti-PLA2R antibody, which is associated with the 70% of cases of primary membranous nephropathy, SPEP, UPEP, and serum-free light chains for myeloma or AL amyloidosis, and HIV, hepatitis B, and hepatitis C serology. In patients with membranous nephropathy on biopsy, age-appropriate cancer screening is recommended given the association with underlying malignancies. If renal function is abnormal or flank pain or hematuria are present, renal ultrasound with Doppler should be considered to rule out renal vein thrombosis. Similarly, calf pain or dyspnea may prompt further imaging to assess for DVT or PE, respectively, given the increased risk of VTE. The treatment of nephrotic syndrome focuses on both the underlying etiology and its complications. As previously discussed, nephrotic syndrome can be either primary or secondary. Treatment of primary glomerular causes of nephrotic syndrome is guided by the degree of proteinuria and generally includes immunosuppression with steroids, calcineurin inhibitors, MMF, rituximab, and cyclophosphamide. On the other hand, treatment of secondary causes of nephrotic syndrome predominantly focuses on management of the underlying etiology. For example, in membranous nephropathy secondary to malignancy, treatment is focused on the underlying cancer, not on immunotherapy. To recap, the complications of nephrotic syndrome can be broadly grouped into six main categories. 1. Sodium retention with extracellular volume overload. 2. Proteinuria. 3. Hyperlipidemia. 4. Hypercoagulability. 5. Increased risk of infection. and 6. Loss of kidney function. Maximal conservative management is recommended regardless of the underlying etiology with excellent blood pressure control maximally tolerated dose of RAS inhibition, treatment of dyslipidemia, dietary sodium restriction, optimization of dietary protein intake, weight optimization, and the more recently recognized role of SGLT2 inhibitors. Prophylactic anticoagulation is indicated in specific cases such as profound hypoalbuminemia in membranous nephropathy. Patients with nephrotic syndrome have reduced oncotic pressure and avid sodium retention which both lead to extracellular volume overload and peripheral edema or even anasarca. Consequently, most patients will require loop diuretics. They often require higher diuretic doses than usual, as loop diuretics have decreased effectiveness in hypoalbuminemic states and are bound to the high amounts of albumin spilling out into the urine. With refractory hypervolemia, fluid restriction to less than 1.5 liters and sodium restriction to less than 2 grams per day may be beneficial in volume status optimization. To decrease intraglomerular pressure and progressive renal function decline, most patients should also be treated with ACE inhibitors or ARBs, 
which reduce proteinuria and the rate of disease progression, unless the patients have a clear contraindication, such as recurrent hyperkalemia. The reduction in proteinuria from these medications also assists in lowering levels of total and LDL cholesterol. Although there is limited data to support the cardiovascular benefit of statins for hyperlipidemia in nephrotic syndrome, the general consensus is to start hyperlipidemic patients on a statin to reduce cholesterol levels. A reasonable approach is to target an LDL less than 2.0 millimoles per liter, or 50% reduction, which is the same target as patients with chronic kidney disease. However, this target may not be attainable until the underlying condition is treated. There is also evidence to suggest that statins may slow the rate of progression of the underlying kidney disease and reduce proteinuria. The decision to prophylactically anticoagulate patients is always dependent on the risk of thrombosis versus the risk of bleeding in the individual patient that you are assessing. Treatment with warfarin or low molecular weight heparin is often initiated in patients with a serum albumin less than 20 to 25 grams per liter, as more severe hypoalbuminemia is associated with a higher risk of VTE. In particular, patients with membranous nephropathy seem to be at highest risk of VTE. Pregnant patients should also be considered for prophylactic anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin due to their baseline prothrombotic state. And lastly, patients with nephrotic syndrome are more prone to infections due to loss of immunoglobulins in the urine and treatment with immunosuppressive medications. Therefore, all patients should be up to date with their vaccinations, particularly against Streptococcus pneumoniae. Although renal biopsies recognizing the glomerular pathology of nephrotic syndrome only became commonplace in the past 60 to 70 years, nephrotic syndrome is a disease entity that has been recognized since Hippocrates. In those times, edema was referred to as dropsy. Over 2,000 years ago, Hippocrates made the interesting observation of kidney involvement in some cases of edema, stating, When bubbles settle on the surface of the urine, it indicates a disease of the kidney and the disease will be protracted. Despite this astute observation, it wasn't until 1830 that nephrotic syndrome became defined as a constellation of albinuria, hypoalbuminemia, and edema due to diseased kidneys. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled The Leaky Filter. This episode was written by Dr. Cameron Giles, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Sarah Morin, nephrologist, and Dr. Stephen Gauthier, general internal medicine. The Intranetwork series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. This podcast was recorded by Zara Morali and produced by Nathan Dubnik. Music production by Laxman's Vantha Mohan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Also check out our infographic associated on our website. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.